Good morning. Our reading this morning is taken from the first book of Corinthians, chapter one, reading verses 18 to 25, and it's titled Christ, the power and wisdom of God. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Our Gospel reading is taken from the book of John, chapter 2, and reading verses 13 to 22. Jesus cleanses the temple. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Thanks be to God. Amen. I'm not sure if it's a major personality defect, but I secretly really enjoy watching other people getting massively angry and worked up. Because there's something rather comical in watching that slow build-up of tension until that moment where they've gone bright purple and you can almost see the steam coming out of their ears. I guess it's why I like programmes such as Grumpy Old Men or Room 101, where people create lists not of their greatest fears, as in Orwell's actual Room 101, but rather their hatreds. So you see profound angst against the greatest of horrors of modern life, from Ryanair's customer service, through the career of Jedward, and on to the fury caused by constructing IKEA furniture. It's when you get those celebrities try to win you over to their cause of anger, and you're able to take that step, step back and smugly feel completely unmoved by the ferocity of their ire. 
The thing about anger is that when you are angry, not only do you generally look ridiculous, but you're also really in control of who you actually are. Just think of Basil Fawlty with his mini, bashing it with a stick. We laugh, but how often do we wish we could react similarly when the car breaks down, the printer stops working, or we are in the midst of being on hold and having to be told that our customer is important to them, whilst we have to listen to yet more green sleeves or Robbie Williams' angels being played for us on panpipes. The multitude of irritations caused by modern life can niggle with each of us, so that often when we see people reacting with anger to things, we assume that it is over something trivial, that we might miss the hidden injustices which rightly need to be challenged. I wonder what the people on the side of our gospel story today must have thought about Jesus when he overturns the tables in the temple. Where did that one come from? Why is he throwing his toys out of the pram? Even those who might have understood Jesus' antipathy towards the practices in the temple might have thought it unnecessary for Jesus to make a scene. People who make a scene often end up on the scaffold. Stick your head above the parapet only if you're prepared to have it shot off. This passage about the cleansing of the temple appears in all four of the Gospels, so it's clearly a very important story for the early church. However, Matthew, Mark and Luke all place it much later, soon after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we're going to remember in a few weeks on Palm Sunday. In John's Gospel, which we have today, it is very close to the start, just after Jesus has called the first disciples, and after that most wonderful of all miracles, the wedding of Cana and the turning of water into wine. The temple was, to the Jewish mind, where God was especially present, a special place for worship and sacrifice. Cattle, sheep and doves were required for burnt offerings in the temple. And the incident of the overturning of the tables happens at Passover time, when Jews would have been travelling long distances to worship in the temple and therefore could not have brought their own animals to be sacrificed. Temple tax could not be paid in Greek or Roman coins, so it had to be changed into the legal currency appropriate for the temple in Jerusalem, the shekel. The sale of animals and changing of money were necessary if appropriate worship was to happen. As a result of this, people were excluded from worship, especially if they couldn't afford the sacrificial animals sold at an exorbitant rate. Alongside that, there were regular abuses of the temple system. People making money on the side, backhanders being handed out, no oversight of any financial regulations, making sure that your mate financially benefited, rampant nepotism for the positions of power and no desire to stop the corruption. Just think the government contracts at the start of the first lockdown and you get a kind of flavour of the level of crookedness that we're talking about. Jesus confronts both the corruption that was taking place and the symbolic collusion it represented between the religion and the occupying Roman oppressors. 
Jesus was challenging the implicit exclusion of people from being able to worship, especially if they were poor. In overturning the tables, Jesus wasn't just confronting abuses of the system, he was confronting the whole system. The abuse was indicative of a wider rottenness. One of my favourite lines about the nature of God is that part where it says about God being slow to anger. Being slow to anger is something I think we all at times could try harder to be. Slow to anger, swift to mercy. For Jesus, it really does take a lot to make him angry. The cynical system of corruption and abuse of power which prevents people from worshipping God and living in freedom. Slow in anger he might be, but he is justified in that anger nonetheless. The consequences for him personally, for his anger on that day, are clear. The people he upsets are the ones who are then implicitly involved in plotting for his death. They are that unpleasant mixture of backroom politics, false religion and military might, all colluding and conspiring together just to kill the Prince of Peace. When we speak out against injustice and evil, we must be prepared that the powers that be will fight back. They will belittle, humiliate, persecute, undermine and threaten. I would love to say that when bullies are confronted with their actions, they always immediately see the errors of their ways and repent and live a life of benevolence and graciousness. But we all know that that very rarely happens. Even Jesus cannot unharden the hearts that are there in front of him. So maybe when we are confronted by narcissists, we needn't beat ourselves up when they haven't stopped their bad practices. Instead, we must be prepared to carry on, to continue to challenge the corruption, dishonesty and depression wherever we see it. Jesus finally loses his call. How are we to respond when we see injustice? Often Christians have struggled uh, with when those periods when anger can tip over into violence, and we are not called to violence but we are called to anger when confronted with the abuse of God's creation and the mistreatment of God's children. One of the great theological problems going back to Sunday school is that too often we were taught of the gentle Jesus, meek and mild mentality. Too often we have assumed that as Christians, that is what is expected of us to cower in the corner and say and do nothing whilst the forces of iniquity and exploitation run rampant. Whatever happened to gentle Jesus, meek and mild, our assumptions in our reading today are overturned in the same way as the tables of the sellers in the temple were overturned. We cannot remain silent. Silence is complicity. Cowering in the corner is not Christ-like. So, this Lenten tide, I want you to think of the things which should make you angry. The fact that 1.4 million people are reliant on food banks in this country. That over 900 homeless people died last year, eight times the figure for most recent years. That statues of slave owners are afforded greater protections and have a longer life expectancy than black men living in our inner cities. 
that we have reduced our aid contributions to the Yemen by over 50%, and yet happily arm the Saudi government as it continues its violence and torture there. Those are just a few suggestions of issues where we as Christians might have justifiable anger. The last thing our world needs is for the church to be gentle, meek and mild. God requires us to be like Christ, to be a church bristling with prophetic zeal and willing to turn the tables of all that kills abundant living. So during this Lent, let us think about how we can shift our anger from the trivial to the righteous. Listen, Lord Jesus, I am angry too. So in the kingdom's causes, let me rage with you. Amen.